This morning, again, we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter, and I echo what Craig has already said, it's good to be together. We thank the Lord for such a beautiful morning. 2 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 1, we're going to look specifically at verses 5 through 11, and by way of reminder, last week we looked at verses 3 and 4. And we learned there that God in his grace has, has given us what is needed for life and for godliness. And we said that those, those verses serve as a foundation of sorts upon which the commands that follow are built. It's this, this foundation of grace. And knowing that we've been given what is needed for, for life and for godliness leads us to ask the question, what am I to do? What am I to do with what God has given me? And now coming to these verses, verses 5 through 11, uh, we see these words that, that Peter wrote to the believer will be helpful for us this morning. They will be helpful for us by instructing us in what we are to do, how we are to live in light of divine provision. And we will see that because we've been given all that is needed for life and godliness, We must actively pursue spiritual growth in order to flourish in our knowledge of Christ. And so we can be assured of entering his eternal kingdom. So we're going to read together 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. We'll read all the way through verse 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful this morning for your word. And our desire is to grow in Christ's likeness. And so we ask that you would come and be our teacher. Give us receptive hearts to receive your word. We pray that you would change us. Make us like Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. We, we might say that the life of the believer is a life of purpose. A life of purpose. Those who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ have been given a new identity. We're called by a new name, sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are servants of the Most High God. We have purpose. And our privilege is to bring glory to God. And and we do that by living a life that's pleasing to Him. This is significant for us We have purpose. 
And after laying the groundwork here in, in these verses that we looked at last week, verses 3 and 4, Peter now gives us instruction. He gives us instruction with regard to an appropriate response to divine provision. And in verses 5 through 7, as we begin here, we're going to see the believer's pursuit. The believer's pursuit. Peter's going to list for us several qualities. We might summarize this by saying the believer's pursuit is spiritual growth. If we're going to fulfill the purpose for which God has called us, namely to bring glory to his great name, then we must pursue spiritual growth. As we begin, it's important for us to take a good look at verse 5. Look with me at how this verse begins. These words, for this very reason, for this very reason. I understand these words to serve as a hinge of sorts. They're connecting what Peter has just said in verses 3 and 4, namely that his divine power has given us what we need for life and godliness. This provision flows down to us as an act of God's grace. And so these words, for this very reason, they, they link together these words in 3 and 4 with what is to follow in 5 to 7. For this very reason, because you've been the recipients of God's grace, here's what you are to do. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Here is the call for the believer to put forth effort. As we think about our Christian life, we recognize that growth in godliness, that is the, the pursuit of spiritual growth, requires effort. Effort, of course, that's empowered by the Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives. And so we exert effort all the while recognizing that it's God who is at work in us. This is how the New Testament speaks of how the believer grows. We're familiar with passages like Philippians 2.12 where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Or Colossians 1. We talk about these verses often. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then verse 29, Paul says, for this I toil. He's laboring in this. For this I toil. Struggling, how? With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so, we, like Paul, put forth effort, but we recognize that we are carried along by the grace of God. We're empowered by the one who is living within us. And so Peter gives instruction here. He says, make every effort to supplement or, or to add to your faith. We are to be active in our spiritual lives. Peter says, add to this faith, and here he's referring to saving faith. It's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. Faith, faith is the, the foundation upon which we, we live our lives. The writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. So Peter says, add to your faith virtue or, or moral excellence. This is the same word that describes Christ. Right? Up in verse 3, he calls us by his own glory and excellence. 
If we look back in Peter's first letter, 1 Peter, 1, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you see what he's doing? He's reminding the readers, here's who you are. This is what God has done. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Here's who you are. Here's what you ought to do. It's important that we keep this order in place. We are recipients of God, God's grace, and then we live out that grace in our lives. And so Peter says here, add to your faith virtue or excellence. It's, it's moral excellence. And so we reflect God's excellencies. We show his excellencies by reflecting them in our lives and the way we conduct ourselves. We strive for purity in our relationships. Our speech is pure and uplifting. We show integrity in our jobs and in school. And to this virtue then, he says, add knowledge. To virtue, add knowledge. It's, it's knowledge of, of a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to know who he is and what his will is for us and how I can grow in my relationship with him. Sometimes at, at Bethany Community Church, we sing this song where we say, I want to know you, Jesus, my Lord. Jesus, to know you, then know you more. Knowledge of God is of great importance to Peter. He closes the letter with the charge, grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're right to ask the question, how do we do this? How do we grow in our knowledge of Christ? We begin by acknowledging that we're dependent upon him for this growth. Lord, I need you. And then we set about seeking after him, and we do that by seeking him in his word. And as we approach God's word, we say with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. This is how we pursue knowledge of Christ. Knowledge comes through his word. And the more we grow in our knowledge of him, the more we grow in our understanding of who he is as our savior and our relationship with him is strengthened, we delight in him. And this delight overflows into the way that we speak and the way that we conduct ourselves and, and the way that we think. Have you spoken with someone who's really passionate about what they do? Some of you students, think, think about, maybe you're thinking of a teacher who loves the subject she's teaching. And it's a bit contagious, right? As she's, as she's teaching you, you can tell she's, she's done her homework and she's, she's studied and she's passionate about this. Or you speak with someone who, who really enjoys the job that they're in. As our, as our love for Christ grows, our passion for him grows, and we begin to proclaim him. And we say with the psalmist, I love you, O Lord, my strength. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. 
Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. So we, we grow in this knowledge of Christ by spending time with him. Spending time with him in his word. Remember, Peter is writing this letter to... One, one reason is, is to warn them about the false teachers who are going to infiltrate the church. These, these false teachers about whom Peter warns had no knowledge of Christ. No true knowledge but as we pursue spiritual growth now, we, we add to knowledge then self-control. Self-control may be defined simply as the restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. It's restraint. Paul says in, in Galatians 5, there we read about the fruit of the Spirit and, and self-control is listed as a fruit of the Spirit. As a fruit of the Spirit, it's, a, it's an evidence. It's a manifestation of the Spirit of God in a person's life. With the Spirit of God at work in our hearts, now we have the ability to say no to the temptations that entice us. These, the physical temptations and the sexual temptations that entice us to sin, the Spirit is at work in us. And we have the ability now to say no. Again, remember Peter is writing to expose these false teachers and their immoral conduct. The false teachers exercise no self-control. Instead, he says they're insatiable for sin. Which means their appetites are never quenched. They have hearts trained in greed. They are those who are still enslaved to the passions of the flesh. In contrast, we as followers of Christ submit to the spirit of Christ in our lives. And that works its way out in demonstration of self-control. And then to self-control, we add steadfastness or endurance. Just a note before we move forward. These, these lists of, of qualities here, it's not as if Peter is saying, okay, um, begin here, and once, once you've mastered excellence, now you move on to knowledge. And once you've mastered knowledge, you move on to self-control. Rather, he's, 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 he's using a, a he, he wants us to, to think about our Christian lives as a whole. And so we're pursuing these things. We're adding to our faith these qualities, and here he says, adds to self-control, steadfastness or endurance. This life is hard. Life is difficult. And we, we groan under the difficulties of life. And here, this, this idea of endurance or steadfastness carries with it this, the idea of bearing up, bearing up under affliction. Bearing up under affliction. So we think about the things that afflict us. There's, there's the, the external things that come to us. I'm thinking here of, of the enticement of the world. The world afflicts us. Right? And then there's, there's, there's this external influence of, of the devil. Right? There's a spiritual battle going on here. He afflicts our soul. And then there's the internal battle. We're fighting our flesh. And so we recognize that in this life, we are an afflicted people. And Peter says, add to your faith now endurance, steadfastness, stay the course, bear up under affliction. 
We understand that, that endurance here, specifically with regard to living upright and morally excellent lives in the fa- face of temptation. We recognize this is, this is necessary in our lives as followers of Christ. And the necessity of bearing up under affliction and difficulty, it's been made abundantly clear to us over the past several months. Has it not? How appropriate for us to consider endurance this morning. And the scripture says we grow in our ability. As, as, we, as we grow in Christ's likeness, in his kindness, he, he grows us up and, and enables us to endure. We grow in our ability to press on and to remain steadfast. This is how the Apostle Paul can say words like this. We rejoice in our sufferings. Who speaks like that? We rejoice in sufferings? What kind of suffering, if, if we were, to, if we were to, to take a poll about all the ways that we are suffering this morning, there are many ways. And Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Only believers can speak like this because we recognize that suffering is not without purpose. Not for the believer, because as Paul says here, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Or James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How does the cross of Christ the work of Christ speak to our ability to bear up in affliction, to endure? Remember, we've, we've talked about last week, we talked about Christ and his glory, his beauty, his perfection. Christ endured to the point of death. All the while, he entrusted himself to the Father. His death and his resurrection secured our redemption. And now that I'm in Christ by faith, I'm able to endure by looking to him as my example. When I feel that I can't bear up any longer under the pressure that I'm in, I cry out to my God. I cry out to my Savior, oh God, you know what it's like. You know the weight and the pressure I'm feeling now. You know what it's like to be crushed physically. The Lord knows what it's like to be alone. To be isolated. Oh Lord, you know what it's like to be mocked. You know what it's like to be ridiculed. And and you know what it is when others turn their back on you. Lord, you know what it's like to endure the enticement of the world. And I need you. Remind me, Lord, remind me that you endured to the point of death and you suffered death in my place so I wouldn't have to. Remind me of your goodness, Lord. Remind me of your steadfast love. Remind me that none of my sufferings are without purpose. Christ, Christ, give me strength to endure. This is how we pursue steadfastness. 
We do that by looking to Christ, keeping our eyes focused on him. And then to steadfastness, we add godliness. And godliness, we could simply say godliness is living a life that's pleasing to him. And the more we grow in in understanding our God, the more we understand what this looks like in our lives. We learn that there's a way to speak to our spouse, to our coworker, and to our friend. There's There's a way to do that that's pleasing to the Lord. As we grow in our spiritual maturity, then we, we begin to become more and more sensitive to sin. We see sin in our own lives. I've heard it said that, that, that the believer experiences the highest highs. You know where this is going, right? And the lowest lows. To godliness, we add brotherly affection. This speaks of love for others in a family. We remember that by his grace, we're, we're a family here. We, we, we use this word often, right? We're going to have a family meeting. This isn't by accident. God refers to us as sons and daughters. We are members of the family of God. And here Peter says, add to your faith brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection, Paul says in Romans 12.10. The writer of Hebrews in 13.1, let brotherly love continue. We recognize that followers of Christ have and will continue to respond to our circumstances in a variety of ways. What a tremendous opportunity for us as God's people to bring him glory as we demonstrate brotherly affection for one another. By his grace, we'll refuse to slander our brother or sister, one who holds a different political position than we do. I'll refuse to gossip about persons who have different convictions than I do about what we should do or what we shouldn't do in the face of this pandemic. We'll prefer one another. We'll give one another the benefit of the doubt. We'll forgive one another. We'll strive to not cause one another to stumble. We'll bear with one another through our sins. We'll overlook one another's offenses and we'll carry one another's burdens. Here, Peter says, add brotherly affection. And then he closes this list with, with, with love. It's interesting. He begins with faith and ends with love. This is the love Paul speaks about in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an active, an active love. Since we've been given what is needed for life and godliness, we are to pursue spiritual growth, and we do so by supplementing our faith here with these things. And then if these qualities are ours, he says if these qualities are ours and they're increasing, they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. We might put it positively and say, We will be effective and we will be fruitful in our knowledge of Christ when when these qualities are ours and are increasing or abounding. We could call this effectiveness and fruitfulness the believer's flourishing. The believer's flourishing. Peter says that if these qualities are ours and, and if they're increasing, they keep us from being ineffective. This word ineffective, we, we find in Matthew 20, there's, there's a parable there in Matthew 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. 
And the master of the house, he, he goes out to summon these laborers to go to work. And what he finds is these laborers are standing around idle. And he says, why do you stand here idle all the day? And they say to him, because no one has hired us. This is the word, ineffective. Or James says in James 2.20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There's the idea here. And so we begin to get an understanding, perhaps, of, of what it means to be ineffective. And then uh, he says, if these qualities aren't ours, we're not only kept from being ineffective, but unfruitful. If we are to be effective and fruitful in our knowledge of Christ, that is, that if, if we are to flourish, these qualities must be ours and abounding. But, but what does it mean then? What does it mean to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of Christ? Here's how I think it fits together. The means by which God has given us all that is needed for life and godliness is knowledge of him. If you look up at verse 3, we remember this. Through the knowledge of him who called us. And so it, it comes to us through knowledge of Christ. And now here we're told that if these virtues, these, these qualities listed in 5 through 7 are ours and they're abounding, they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in this knowledge. And so what I take from this is that the knowledge of Christ is not just something that we possess here. It's something that's active and it has purpose. And there are ways for us to apply this knowledge of Christ in an effective and fruitful way so as to fulfill the purpose for which he has called us, namely to bring glory to himself. And the way that we do that then is through the pursuit and demonstration of these qualities. Our knowledge of Christ is worked out in these ways. We might say that the more that these qualities abound in our lives, the more effective and fruitful we will be, and we will flourish. We will flourish as God's people. This is in contrast, this is in contrast to, the, to the person who has his eyes closed to this reality, namely that he's been cleansed from his former sins. This is a picture of a person squinting his eyes. He's unable to see. He's unable to discern what has happened. He's unable to comprehend the spiritual realities of life in Christ. This person is not living in accord with a new nature. He's living a stunted life. He doesn't see Christ in his beauty. And those who don't have these qualities make evident that they've forgotten practically in the way that they live that they've been, that they've been cleansed. This person is one who lives an ineffective and unfruitful life. There's a warning implicit here of, of drifting along through life. And so how do we avoid this kind, of, this kind of drifting? How do we make sure that these qualities are ours? We, we keep our eyes focused on our Savior. We remember that in Him, in Him, remember verses 3 and 4. In him we have eternal life. In Christ we have hope. In Christ our sins have been washed away. In him I've been given all that is needed for life and godliness. We drink deeply of the gospel. 
We commit to memory verses like Galatians 2.20 that says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our adversary would love nothing more than to convince us that those words are not true. He is the accuser of the brothers. He loves to isolate us and and assault our minds with lies. And so we do battle by remembering the gospel. And as we're overwhelmed by the goodness of God, we recount the glorious reality that Christ came to us when we were dead in sin. And he lifted us out of the filth that we were immersed in and washed us clean and gave us new life and, and promises to never leave us. We're overwhelmed by the reality of this grace, and then we give ourselves to the pursuit of living a godly life. I desire to please him, and I pursue him by pursuing these qualities by his grace. And then in the strength that God supplies, we put one foot in front of the other and strive for godly living. And the beautiful promise is that when we do these things, we will flourish. We will flourish, which leads us to our last point here. Our last point, the believer's assurance. This section then comes to a close with the command to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Calling and election, they're very similar terms. They refer to God's sovereignty in salvation. But interestingly, the, the emphasis here is on our responsibility and here is the tension that we see throughout Scripture. We have God's sovereignty and humans, human responsibility. Context is always important. Remember, in this letter, Peter is warning the believers of those false teachers who are going to infiltrate the church and spread their destructive teaching. They claim to be followers of Christ, but, but their lives give no evidence. They were corrupt and immoral. But Peter says the way to confirm your calling and election is by practicing the qualities that we see in verses 5 through 7. And and when we do so, we have assurance that we will never fall and that we will enter the eternal kingdom. We we might say that, that living an effective, fruitful life through the pursuit of spiritual growth yields assurance. Peter says if you practice these things, you will never fall. This is emphatic. You will never, ever fall. Peter's not speaking of sin here, I don't believe. He's not saying you will never sin. Rather, he's saying you will never be lost, ultimately. Here is assurance and security for the believer. This is good news for us. There is a way for us to be confident and assured that we will not fall from our Lord And we will enter his eternal kingdom, this this eternal kingdom that will be fully realized when Christ returns. At that time, when Christ returns, we who are in him will be richly welcomed into his kingdom. The emphasis here is on, on God, who richly provides for us an entrance into the kingdom. It's likely that the picture that would have been in their minds is is that of an Olympian who, after winning his event, returns home 
And, and as he's making his way home, he, he, is, he is greeted there with a great triumphal welcome. They're welcoming him home. God in his grace provides entrance into his kingdom. There we will see our beloved Savior, and there we will dwell with him for all eternity. Here is hope and motivation for us to pursue our Lord by practicing these qualities. God has given us what is needed for life and for godliness. And because of this, we, we must actively pursue spiritual growth. Our, our lives as followers of Christ is not a passive life. It's one of active pursuit. And we do so so we can flourish in our knowledge of Christ and, and be assured of entering his eternal kingdom. And by his grace, we will. Father, we thank you this morning for your promises. Thank you for making us your own. Thank you for giving us what is needed for life and for godliness. And in your strength, we will pursue you. We will strive to manifest godly living. So will you help us this week to do that for your great name's sake? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.